Glory to Jesus Christ. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evercatinos, and we're picking up this evening on page 195, uh, the very bottom of the page uh, with St. Ephraim of the Syrian, and this actually brings us to the end of hypothesis number 22. And uh, if you remember, we've been talking uh, a great deal about avoiding meetings with those who are live a more worldly lifestyle and avoiding those who can be, bring harm to us spiritually, uh, either through converse or through, through lifestyles itself. And then we'll be moving on to avoiding engaging in worldly affairs, even if they seem to be uh, justified. Uh, the fathers again and again point out how important it is uh, to discern if it's something that is uh, accord, in accord with God's providence that we would be engaged in. But we are to be very discerning, even when it comes to worldly affairs that seem to be good and, and worthwhile. And uh, it, it's sort of highlighted, I think, within the monastic vocation, because they were seen for their wisdom and often called out of the desert to, to intervene in certain situations, whether within the church, but also sometimes within society. And so it could be a danger to be pulled out of their environment for too long of a period of time. But I think it gives us a lot to think about too. What is it that we engage in on a day-to-day -day basis, weekly, uh, the things that we're asked to participate in and how might this affect our spiritual life? And so again, we're at the bottom of 195 with St. Ephraim. My brother, do not step in mud and remove yourself from men who strut around without fear of God. A sparrow imprisoned in a cage calls sparrows to its prison, and he who is fettered in sins impels many others to the depths of evils. Decline, my brother, to be with those who love idleness and do not choose to practice silence. Avoid those who love banquets and who say, I'm having you to dinner today and tomorrow, and you will entertain me. For if you go along with these words, you will not achieve a virtuous life, but I will become, but will become a habitation of every passion. Immediate, uh, I'm sorry, imitate those who are fervent in spirit and tread the narrow way of affliction so that you may attain to eternal life. So the focus of the monk and really the focus for all of us as Christian men and women, those who've been baptized is to become a habitation of holiness. You know, and those in whom the spirit of God dwells. And I think the great danger of uh, being immersed in worldly things is becoming what is mentioned here, a habitation of every passion that uh, the images here, I think are very powerful. An imprisoned sparrow will call out to other sparrows, drawing it to its own prison. And so the voices from the world and from those who are immersed in the passions are often going to be very strong and speak to the heart and draw us, draw us uh, to them. And so we have to be very discerning uh, and guarded in terms of uh, what we are responding to, uh, that there is all often going to become come invitations to participate in things, uh, to lower, in a sense, what we, the standard that we would hold ourselves to and the expectations that we would have of ourselves. Sometimes, again, out of a, a sense of charity uh, that we think that we need to participate or we are not being very hospitable or, or very kind. And so there can be something that pulls us back as well as maybe a more hidden uh, attraction to the things of the world. Having, you know, the monks in particular, having stepped away from so much, you know, so many of the comforts of the world, doesn't mean that those things, when presented to them once again, are not going to take hold of them and give rise to the passions. And so they knew that to be away from the monastery too long would be uh, put one in an occasion of, of danger that it could weaken one's resolve. And if you remember last time, uh, we heard the monks say that if you're away longer than the permission that was given by uh, the abbot, that you would do penance for being away too long. Uh, not not in, in the sense of punishment so much as it is uh, an understanding that one has been exposed to things that again can weaken one's resolve. So to deepen one's prayer life, the ascetical life, in order to cling once more 
to the life that they had committed themselves to. And uh, so it would be a rarity for them to live, leave the monastery and they knew the dangers of it. And I think for all of us who are called out into the world on a day-to-day -day basis, we can take a lot for granted. And so I think to be more discerning and discriminating here is what we we're being called to. And that brings us into uh, the, to, to the end of 22 and into 23, which is a very similar theme. And uh, this hypothesis and the next will take us a little bit deeper into what we've been discussing. Okay. So concerning the fact that we must keep away from those who harm us, even if they are friends or are otherwise quite indispensable, and I thought the last little addition here was interesting that there can be those in our life that do feel indispensable to us in the sense of what they provide to, uh, to us in our, our life, uh, whether we work together or have been longtime friends or things along those lines that emotionally or perhaps uh, in our day-to-day -day life or work, they seem indispensable to us or that we've known each other for so many years that life seems like uh, it wouldn't be the same without them. And so uh, there might be certain circumstances where we are challenged to follow Christ and that it might mean cutting something out of our life and even a relationship where we have to mourn the loss of that and be prepared to mourn the loss of that in order to follow Christ. So from the Gerontcon, the sayings of the fathers, Abba Agathon said, even if someone is extremely dear to me, but I know that he leads me into faults. I cut him loose from myself. So a rather stark uh, saying to begin uh, this hypothesis. Uh, but again, uh, it draws us back to the gospels uh, in which the fathers were deeply rooted. And uh, we remember Christ saying, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out that there often are times in our life where there are, are things that lead us into sin. I think a big one for all of us would probably be technology. And especially if we were struggling with the passions in a great way in our life. And, um, you know, especially computers, I think today are a means for people to sort of enter into this virtual reality, but also to be exposed to many things that can be sinful and or, or simply, I think our, our use of computers can be unbalanced at times too, and keep prevent us from engaging in our work or our relationships. And so there might be times where we have to set ourselves free from it, or for, for some, I think it might mean uh, cutting ourselves loose from it permanently, knowing what a, a grip it can have upon us. It, it can become like an addiction, like alcoholism, that uh, it can draw individuals into sin, especially if it's been a vehicle of that for many years or from one's earliest childhood even. An elder said, we must flee from all who work iniquity, even if they be friends or relatives, and even if they hold the office of priest or king. For standing apart from those who work iniquity bestows on us friendship with God and boldness before the world. So again, we go back to the scriptures that uh, uh, we are warned that those who love the world are at enmity with God. And so even if there is someone who represents worldly power or someone that has authority within the church itself, a priest, if they would lead us into iniquity, that there should not be that hesitation within us uh, to, to move away from them. Uh, that why would we jeopardize our relationship with God or jeopardize our moral state in order to maintain a relationship that, again, seems to offer us something of benefit uh, in one way or another, but yet underneath the surface uh, can be something that leads us into sin. The same elder said, it is not profitable for us to cling to transgressors, neither in the church, nor in the marketplace, nor in the council, nor in any other realm. Rather, we must completely refrain from relations with them. For every transgressor is worthy of, of abhorrence, and it is condemned and is condemned to eternal punishment. And so, 
you know, I think it's wor worth our reflecting upon this, you know, the call to love and to bear witness to the love of God and the cross of forgiveness of mercy is to be the guiding, you know, principle within our life. And we are to look at others with, uh, not in a condescending way, but as uh, those that we share a certain solidarity with and in terms of our own struggle with sin. And yet we are to maintain this kind of clear uh, understanding and balance in our life that we are not to immerse ourselves in a lifestyle that draws us back uh, to the very things that uh, have uh, imprisoned us in the, in the past. And, uh, and there is that tendency, uh, that uh, proverb, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a sinner returns to his sin. And so that even though we are called to love and bear witness to that love of Christ, we are not, again, to immerse ourselves in a lifestyle or uh, any kind of behavior that can draw us back to what perhaps we've labored by the grace of God and the ascetic life to become free, free from. And we can never be under the illusion that we would not be affected by something simply because we haven't been exposed to it for perhaps many years. Any comments so far, questions, Bridget? St. Cyril of Alexandria wrote, every creature loves his kind, therefore those with vices like those with similar vices. Yes, like is drawn to like, is attracted to like. I feel like this means we must know our vices well so that we know who we will be attracted to and could be stumbling blocks. Holy peace is not found here, he added. Yes, Facebook is very dangerous and social media is very dangerous. I need to take this advice seriously. Yes, so that's a very good point. You know, like, uh, again, like is attracted to like. You know, St. Cyril picks up on something important here that, you know, those who are drawn to the same vices can often be the means uh, and the excuse to enter into them uh, once again, that we can give each other a pass on certain behaviors uh, because we're both attracted to the same same kind of things. And so rather than seeking to guard and protect each other's virtue, we can be compatriots, as it were, in the pursuit of the similar vice. Number four. An elder said, do not live in any place where you see people feeling envy towards you. Otherwise, you will not make progress. This is an interesting one. And Carol, before we started the group, uh, started, we started to discuss it a little bit. Now, why is it envy in particular that, uh, that we would want to, to avoid uh, and that it would actually prevent us from progressing in the spiritual life? And uh, others can add to this in terms of your own thoughts. But, you know, as I've, I've read the fathers over time, often a distinction between jealousy and envy is made that uh, with jealousy in particular, there is can be this desire for what the other person has, uh, you know, that we could covet and what they have and long to have it for ourselves. Uh, envy takes us a step further. Uh, when we covet what they have, it cannot possess it. Then it can move to the place where uh, we say to ourselves in our mind, well, if I can't have it, then no one can have it. And envy, so envy can become something that is very destructive. Uh, and if we think about this on the spiritual plane, that there can be an envy that develops of an individual who is making uh, progress within the spiritual life and the ascetical life. And someone who sees that and has this, the passion of envy uh, can then look upon them through that lens and develop an animosity, a hatred uh, for them, or seek not even in a fully conscious way to undo uh, what is going on in one life in one way or another in their life by taking up an adversarial position in relationship to them, you know, that, uh, that uh, anger can begin to flare up within the relationship 
uh, the call into question aspects of the person's spiritual life and whether or not uh, it is something good. And so again, they become a kind of stumbling block in and through that, that vice uh, that can halt the progress of a person spiritually unless they step away from it. So, you know, in a sense, it can become like what we would often describe in our day as a toxic relationship. The, there is something there that can poison the relationship to such an extent that uh, spiritual progress becomes very difficult uh, in the presence of the other. Because you have somebody at that point who's actively seeking to uh, impede it. Okay. Uh, I think Anthony, you had your hand up first and then Carol. Anthony, I just realized the evil eye is about envy. It's a serious thing for both Christians and pagans. I've often heard that come up, you know, that in certain cultures that this would be given, it's like a kind of jinx. Um, I don't know how she would describe it. Uh, uh, sort of negative spirit directed towards the other. It can even be involved in like witchcraft. It's kind of weird. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is, you know, part of the thought there that, you know, that people would take these measures then, even though they seem to be living a godly life or in a community that so driven by that envy that uh, they become a kind of Judas, the, the, a kind of darkness takes over uh, at a certain point and they can begin doing things that seem to be wholly unchristian and uh, contrary to the gospel. Carol, envy is a spirit of Hades. It battles unceasingly against the righteous and God Envy never stops. The spirit of Hades envies all men for all things. Elder Thaddeus. Uh, we've mentioned his name a couple of times. He wrote uh, a work called Our Thoughts Determine Our Lives. An excellent work, uh, by the way, if you're interested in, in reading it. It's well worth having in your library. Uh, but interesting, again, how strongly he defines it here. A spirit of Hades. You know, this something that is reflective of the fallen angels, in particular, the devil himself, uh, envy uh, of God's righteousness, goodness, and uh, it never stops. So there's something that uh, envy sort of feeds upon itself, and uh, it has this kind of eternal quality almost that... Uh, uh, and so he uh, writes here, the spirit of Hades envies all men for all things. And this is part of what drives the hatred of, of the evil one for us, because, precisely because of what God has done for us, his only begotten son, and what has been given to us, that in a sense raised higher than the ranks of the angels themselves, that you know, God takes upon himself our humanity and uh, elevates it into the very life uh, of God itself, himself. And so we begin to share intimately and are destined to experience a kind of deification in and through Christ. And so then we become the object of envy of the fallen angels. And this is why we are constantly afflicted, attacked with temptations, anything to pull us away from that reality. And, uh, we see it actively present uh, in the temptations of Christ himself, you know, by even quoting scripture, but in a way to undermine uh, that which was most beautiful, this obedient love uh, that uh, was cast off uh, by the demons themselves. Good comments. Any other thoughts? Okay, a little bit of here. Okay, let's see, number five. A brother asked an elder, if my brother scandalizes me, do you want me to make a prostration to him? The elder answered, make a prostration, but cut yourself off from him. For we have Abba Arsenius who said, have love for all men, but keep a distance from all men. 
Uh, and I've loved that saying from Arsenius, have a love for all men, but keep a distance from all men. And St. Isaac the Syrian says something similar. Uh, and though anyone who would make himself a stumbling block, again, an impediment to the embrace of the will of God uh, is to be moved away from. And we find it again in Christ uh, himself in the way that he speaks to Peter when uh, he uh, says to Christ that, you know, that he should not go to Jerusalem and he will never allow uh, what Christ uh, prophesies about to happen, that, uh, that here, there he would be arrested and be put to death. And, um, and so he says, you know, get behind me, Satan, you've become a stumbling block to me, you've become a scandal on to me, an impediment. Uh, so Peter was actively trying to prevent him standing in the way of his going to Jerusalem to fulfill the Father's will. And so in a similar way, that we have to have that sensitivity of conscience and clarity of conscience that whenever someone is seeking to prevent us from pursuing a, a path that God has made clear to us or the path to virtue, uh, that we are to see it within in the same way. So we are, as it's, it says here, to love all men, you know, to look upon all with compassion. And again, this acknowledgement of our solidarity in that struggle against sin, but not uh, to draw close to them in the sin itself uh, to the point that we attach ourselves to it or we allow it to become a stumbling block for us. And again, you know, I, I think this is hard for our generation. You know, the, the idea of tolerance uh, has morphed in such a way that it, it isn't uh, sort of looking as said here upon another with love and kindness and generosity of spirit, but it has morphed into also acceptance of all views and all attitudes and behaviors. And, uh, you know, I think sort of the, the kind of the woke culture, if you will, in our own day uh, provides a great stumbling block for, for us because there's so much pressure now too from society as a whole. And anyone who works for a large corporation even is expected to go through certain classes where they are trained to you know, ha have this kind of view and attitude towards things. And it can be very difficult and uh, maybe even present uh, a person with qualms of conscience or a conflict of conscience as to whether or not they remain in a situation where they would be compelled to embrace an attitude or put forward uh, something that uh, is contrary to their beliefs. But it can be very difficult. Uh, Bridget wrote, crushing pressure to be inside the wokeness. Yes, definitely. I think it's in every part of the culture and, you know, I don't, we don't want to become contrary, and I don't, we don't want to become, you know, harsh with others. I think part of being a Christian is being able to have and maintain a spirit of meekness towards all, in the sense that we don't allow anger to take over, where we begin to lash out at others. And I think we see that within our culture as well, you know, this kind of fighting back, but, uh, with a real kind of hostility that becomes a guiding spirit there, where I think we have to be firm, uh, but not lose charity as the, the guiding light for us. And, uh, and so we may have to move away from it, realizing that the, the world has gone along a certain path, but again, we don't want it to become the focal point of, our, of what's in our consciousness. Uh, again, you know, every once in a while, I'll come across a modern elder saying, leave sin alone, you, you focus upon Christ. We can be drawn into this sort of culture war that we feel that puts kind of pressure on us to engage in, that we see so much that is odd and crazy at times going on within the world, and we feel that we have to be part of that discussion, even though it's not often a discussion. And so we get drawn into it. And uh, I think we know what it does to the heart. It takes away any stillness that we might have there. It agitates. 
And if we're immersed in it enough, we can lose, you know, that kind of peace of the kingdom that really prevents us from bearing witness uh, uh, to the peace of Christ in the world in a far more powerful way. And I think this is what the monks were worried about losing when they were drawn out of the monastery too much or for too long of a period of time that you know what they were offering and the sacrifices that they had made in the ascetical life was far more valuable not for themselves in their own spiritual life but for the church as a whole you know, uh, again seeing themselves as part of the body of christ and so living fully for christ and uh setting all things aside was you know something that they did not simply for themselves and i think our temptation can be that we feel that we need to be drawn into uh, this kind of battle, again, this culture war, or that we are being unfaithful, that we're not bearing witness to the gospel. And yet we rarely ask ourselves, well, are we praying for the world? Are we praying for others? Are we making sacrifices on their behalf, fasting, keeping vigils? And do we seek to bear witness in all the other ways that we are called to, uh, to the love of, of the kingdom and how we engage others? Or are we simply drawn uh, to, again, a kind of morbid delight uh, in constantly, constantly being involved in a battle? There can be a kind of fascination with that. You know, aggression is a very powerful thing. It's as powerful as love and uh, attract, you know, being attracted to the other, you know, aggression, that destructive part of our personality can be every bit as powerful. And uh, once a person is drawn into it, uh, again, the, the more we feed upon it, the stronger it can become. And before you know it, 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 really, uh, it, it, it really has an effect upon the way that we see the world in others and if an effect upon the way that we see God. And we, again, lose that stillness and silence within us in order that we might listen to God. We get drawn into the noise of that battle. Okay, any comments? Okay. From St. Ephraim, letter B. My brethren, we should be beware of bad advice. Two men in bright garments were once walking together to the marketplace when the one failing to pay attention stumbled and fell in the mud, totally ruining his fine clothing. Now moved by envy, he hastened to throw his companion in the mire so that he might not be the only unsightly one. So also today, many struggle to trip up others so that they alone may not be unsightly. They say humble things and respond sweetly, so as gradually to distract their hearers from sobriety and lead them down into a pit like their own. They are not embarrassed by their shameful actions, but encourage their neighbors by saying, why do you loathe us? Because we are sinners? Do you not know that life involves falling and getting up again? And saying such things, they feel no shame. Why? Because when they have fallen themselves, they have no desire to rise again as they claim, but are in fact a source of scandal, fall, and corruption to many, and the devil uses them as bait for his fishhook. They are eager to deceive unstable souls and drag them into the same perdition. For this reason, beware of such people, my beloved, and let them not enchant you with their soft words and send you off to their own eternal fire. Well, a powerful paragraph. If I were you, I'd highlight the whole thing because psychologically here, it's incredibly astute, astute as well as spiritually uh, to see what goes on within the, the mind and the heart and the struggle that we often undergo, that there can be this kind of deep and abiding attraction to sin. And even when one has made spiritual progress, there can be these repeated falls. And uh, often we will say to ourselves, you know, I, 
I can't help myself, or I, I know that even after going to confession, I'm going to step back into the same thing. And there can be kind, become a kind of resignation uh, in the face of those realities that betrays a kind of lack of faith, a lack of trust in the grace of God, uh, but also betrays uh, a deeper and an, again, abiding attraction to the things, to the sins themselves or the things that lead to the sins. And it's interesting how he colors this here for us, uh, that it's even spoken with a kind of, of piety and gentleness. You know, do, do you loathe us because we are sinners? Don't you realize that everyone falls and has to struggle to get back up again? And on the surface, it sounds reasonable. And, uh, but it is uh, what we, uh, come across in the gospel where there are those who excuse themselves from the call of Christ to follow him. And I remember the first time looking up the word excuse when coming across that gospel. And it's the etymology of it is ex causa, to free oneself from the charge. And we often are drawn into that. We want to free ourselves from the charge of the ascetical life and the pursuit of virtue and the embrace of the grace that God has given to us to conform ourselves to Christ in every way, in our minds and in our behaviors. And so we can begin to rationalize uh, and spiritualize even uh, that struggle that allows us to remain exactly where we are. And uh, even to draw others along that same path in order that we might not feel, uh, 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 we, we might not feel challenged by our own conscience. That if others sort of go along with us and uh, take this line of thought upon themselves, then we are not shamed in the sense of allowing ourselves to see where the fault lies within us and that deeper attraction to our sin that would pull us then more towards Christ to seek him out more to deepen our prayer and the ascetical life. Uh, you know, I think this is an important thing to see. They, they feel no shame. And I know, you know, psychologically in the way that psychology deals with shame in our own day, there's a lot that's true about that. I think People shame others and it can sort of tear down who they are as a person and their identity and dignity. Uh, but this isn't, I think, how the fathers were looking at it. I think shame is a, a form of, of humility, of truthful living, of seeing the truth of the fact that we can be attracted to the very things that on another level within us that we hate that we have oftentimes have deep contradictions within our hearts. And when this shame is uh, silenced within us, uh, you know, it comes about for one reason or another, our conscience has either been silenced altogether or we, we have, are playing these kind of mental gymnastics and spiritual gymnastics that we see described and here described in this paragraph. Uh, that if we draw along enough people to accept a kind of mediocrity, you know, in the sense of the, the pursuit of Christ and of following him, then we can stay right where we are. And, uh, you know, it's can become the norm and not, not just for an individual or a small group of people, but even for a large portion of the church and one, one might say most of the church. And uh, when, you know, this dynamic uh, dominates and when the culture has formed the church more than the spirit of Christ, then uh, we can lose our way. And, and it can be something that becomes this historical and generational problem for us, where if the gospel is watered down or where there's a disconnect from the spiritual tradition, then uh, what is it that is guiding us and then the generations that follow us, the more we become disconnected from that. 
And uh, as we go along here in this hypothesis and the next, we'll hear them lament that, you know, how things shift from generation to generation and how the early fathers lived this life that was radically abandoned to Christ. And they're radically seeking to live the gospel. But uh, over and over again, they were seeing how easy it is to be drawn into that place of lukewarmness, to lose that early fervor. And we can see that in a very personal way in our lives, too, that sometimes we lose that, that early desire that we have for Christ, that early fervor for him. It cools over time. Uh, but again, you know, this can pass through generations and through the church as a whole. Carol. Uh, it seems like this is a common message in the church, as you said, and even the confessional. Yes, you know, I think, you know, how one preaches or what we hear proclaimed uh, within the church or what we hear uh, given as counsel within the confessional, I think is often different from what we we hear within the, the fathers and uh, and even how some of the saints in later generations engaged in their role as confessor, that the penances given were to be something that uh, would be healing or that would be direct, directed towards the, the vice or the passion that one was struggling with. It was not to be done, something to be done in a perfunctory way or merely symbolic of that spirit of repentance, that it was really to be something that was healing. And so it wasn't to be given to a person as a punishment. It was to be, the penances were to be given as a kind of healing balm guided by this wisdom that had been passed down through the tradition. And I think so often we hear, uh, you know, from, from the pulpit, you know, a spirituality that uh, is sort of disconnected from the spiritual tradition of the, as a whole. And so we'll get little bits and pieces of that, but not connected in such a way that is formative or will be formative over the course of time as one is exposed to it. Or within the confessional, often we might not receive the kind of counsel or penances that are, are meant to guide us in a particular direction. You know, when you read through, uh, and I, I love to always love to recommend this from St. John Cassian's Institutes, but also from his conferences, he has a description of the eight vices, uh, but also how they manifest themselves and the particular remedies that the fathers came to see uh, through the ascetical life. And if we would, would just be given this as, as a means to examine our conscience, but to guide us in the day-to-day -day spiritual life, it would be a valuable resource. And it's only about 20 or 30 pages of reading. Uh, and yet I wasn't exposed to it until well in, in the seminary or when I was a novice. And, uh, and I know I'm sort of circling around this, but I think within the confessional, sometimes, you know, we've people often even joke about it, you know, say, you know, so many Hail Marys, so many Our Fathers, and it can be sort of the same thing over and over again, but never really uh, addressing the, the struggle that's at hand in any kind of deep way that there can be this sort of urgency to get people in and out of the confessional. So it's lost that, and the, the time for counsel has been lost, but also a counsel that's rooted in the, the wisdom of the fathers has been lost too. And so it becomes very generic. And, uh, and you know, there's certainly the grace that is present and given within the sacrament. And that again, the spirit of contrition of repentance is what is most, most important. But I think being able to take hold of that grace and through the penance that is given, be able to engage in that spiritual battle more fully is equally as important. And I think that even the idea of penance has been so minimized, minimized that, uh, uh, you know, I don't think there, you know, is any expectation. And I think sometimes priests are even told, you know, okay, you need to ask people if that's acceptable. 
you know, that the penance that is given, you know, or is that too much? And certainly the penitent has the right to, you know, to question something, you know, especially if it seems extreme, out of bounds, unreasonable, or in terms of the time that it would take to complete it. But I think in some ways, priests are even, you know, it sort of hamstrings priests in this kind of way, or, you know, in, in the sense of offering any substantive counsel. So it's a good thought and certainly worth exploring. And again, I think it's, you know, this is where I think one would prepare to be a confessor by immersing oneself within the spiritual tradition with those who really fought on and struggled on this deep level, knew the workings of the mind and heart so that the counsel that is given could be rooted in that wisdom. Sue and Mark, and then... Uh, Hi, Father. The question that I have for this um, is rooted in, um, I think, the psychology as you're presenting it um, for a lot of things that we struggle with is really good. But there are people who have struggles that are rooted in really, really deep trauma. And I know that there's been, you know, I see things come across that are really talking about within the brain, the physiology of trauma and how it affects the brain and changes how it works. Um, and also things like post-traumatic stress syndrome where they just have flashbacks that uh, particularly immobilize or disable them. And I'm wondering how this is a, can, could be or can it be applied to people whose um, misbehavior or sin Oh, is really seated in a, a very deep trauma and, okay. and what, how this could be applied to that. Yeah, that's my I think, question. Okay, very good. And, you know, certainly as a priest, you know, nearly three decades now, you know, I've seen a lot of trauma and more and more over the course of time. And uh, early on as a priest, it was a, a great source of frustration because I felt that I could only go so far with people before I felt like I was walking within, in the dark and that I had to refer them to someone else who could help them. So spiritually, I felt that there was a kind of impediment there, but something that I didn't, that really prevented me from having a kind of clarity in terms of what kind of spiritual counsel that I would offer as well, that I could see the trauma and understand that it was there but not knowing what it was rooted in. And as a priest, uh, not having a sense, I think in the formation in seminary uh, about how, how to navigate that. Uh, you know, there are certain courses that are given and, you know, pastoral uh, counseling and, uh, but they are minimal. And certainly nothing that prepares you for, I think everything that you are going to hear within the confessional or what you're going to hear when people come seeking counsel. And in fact, there a very large majority of those coming speaking, seeking spiritual direction are coming, are being driven by past trauma that has also affected their spiritual life too. But often what brings them to the priest, I think, is that there still can be a kind of stigma that surrounds psychology itself and therapy. Uh, and, uh, and oftentimes people feel more comfortable approaching the priest. And again, not even in a conscious way, but I think seeking healing. And, uh, but I think in more recent times, you know, that church, the church and psychology have not worked well together, especially in the last century with Freud and uh, his atheism, there was this kind of antagonism. It was even within canon law that priests could not be in practice as psychotherapists. They could not be psychoanalysts. They could not undergo that training. And, and so there was a kind of mutual animosity that developed there because Freud was not only an atheist, but really, uh, you know, his vision of religion was not a positive at all and saw it as something that was obstructive to people's happiness and that it was a mere psychological construct in and of itself. And so you could see why over the last century, there was this kind of uh, uh, difficulty then that uh, people experienced because then when there was real trauma, 
you know, the, the church not being engaged in that dialogue and psychology even self pro pro provided itself with its own impediment. You know, having undergone psychoanalytic training, I can see that, that, uh, that there's this loss of the sense of the word psychotherapy Psyche is actually soul, which the word embodies the full self, the full person. And so if a whole part of a person is sort of truncated, is cut off and not looked at and seen as under the purview of psychology or, or something that is valid, then they aren't going to be hearing or seeing the person in their fullness. And I think uh, the spirituality can be hobbled in a simple, similar way when we don't uh, attend to the emotional aspect of the, the person's life and the effect that trauma has upon them and how spiritual the spiritual life comes to bear on those traumas and can be a great source of healing. Always the greatest resource for a person and the greatest source of healing is going to be the relationship with God. That does not preclude uh, engaging in psychotherapy and seeking to heal the deeper wounds from uh, early trauma in, in one's life. And sometimes, you know, the people I've talked to, that trauma goes back even to pre-verbal times. And so it's been something with them throughout their whole life and even affect the way that they view each other, view reality and view God, view themselves, I mean, and others and view God. And so, a priest has to have the ability, I think, in our day to navigate all, all aspects of what it is to be a human being. And that doesn't mean that every priest has to become a psychotherapist, but I think has to be able to recognize trauma where it does exist so that the spiritual counsel that is being given is not something that is going to be more deeply wounding to an individual that is really going to be a source of healing that doesn't lead them and, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, a deeper uh, uh, and more negative image of self or of God. Uh, so it becomes very important, you know, to be discerning in those regards, in that regard. And it was one of the reasons, I don't want to talk too much about my own experience here, but it's one of the reasons I went back to study at, at the age I was in psychoanalysis, uh, because I felt rooted enough in the faith, and in particular the fathers and the psychology of the fathers, and then to be able to engage in that discussion with modern psychotherapy, and in particular deaf psychology, and uh, and began to see even more and more the wisdom of the fathers and how they often touch upon the very so many different things that psychology does not see. But I also came to see that something like psychoanalysis is a very sharp instrument. It, it does see a lot. And even Freud, when he talked about religion, did see a lot. You know, we might say a profound no to uh, what he says about religion. And, you know, he reduces it to a psychological construct. Uh, but he did some, see some things that were true. It can be exactly that, an auxiliary construction for people that makes them feel secure and stable in, in the world and not be rooted in a, a relationship with Christ or something that is transformative. It can be, religion can become something like a comfortable shoe or chair that one will not part with, uh, even though it doesn't sort of offer anything to their life anymore. And, uh, and often that's what faith becomes for individuals. And so I, th I think we have to be able to navigate, you know, what it is to be a human being and be able to ask the, the, the tough questions and to be able to deal with the real trauma that people experience. I mean, there, there's abuse on a whole host of, of levels, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, neglect, you know, so many different things that, uh, and then we, we see that it's, uh, again, permeated the very life of the church too, and brought it to its knees because of how neglected it was. And, and how the church even followed blindly 
psychology at one point, not having really kept up with the dialogue itself and not being rooted in the spiritual tradition, how we went along blindly uh, and not did not follow, I think, the voice of conscience and truth and saying certain individuals should never be around children again and should not practice as a priest, you know, and that they should be dealt with in the way that they needed to be dealt with. And uh, again and again, individuals were, were put back into the ministry or passed along to other dioceses. And we see how destructive that was to the, the life of the church. So that, that was sort of a, a long way around your question. Uh, but I, I think it is essential, you know, that when we read through the fathers, it's one of the reasons I, I want us to read think, through things slowly, because we have the responsibility of reading it in a discerning way to unpack it for ourselves, how it is that we would live these things within the world, that we don't sort of in an undiscriminating way thrust ourselves into certain spiritual practices and think that they will magically make things right in our relationship with God or in our emotional life. That, that can be just as bad as, you know, sort of, uh, you know, presenting, I think, a spiritual light, you know, to the church or, you know, picking things that are, are positive or sound positive, but really aren't transformative. Okay. And 317-45134. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, mine is just a very quick comment uh, regarding the confessional. Um, I recently uh, had a very, very powerful experience uh, in the confession and uh, confessional uh, due to the fact that um, the priest said nothing to me, but he pulled out a piece of scripture, gospel, uh, on a, a little piece of paper and he slipped it to me and said, this is your penance deeply reflect on it. And so I, I did, and I still am. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that has been probably one of the most powerful confessions I've ever experienced. Uh, and I just wanted to share that because I hope from now on, I can maybe go to the uh, Desert Fathers or the scriptures mm -hmm. with my confession mm -hmm. as well. Uh, as whatever the priest gives me, because that was just so beautiful. Right. Yeah. And I wouldn't want anyone to misunderstand me. A simple penance isn't necessarily problematic, especially if it comes from a prayerful soul and one who's deeply immersed in the spiritual life and immersed within uh, his role as confessor. You know, that which arises from the heart and a word from the scripture that speaks to a person's circumstances or what they're struggling with may be every bit as transformative as some uh, more lengthy or involved advice or counsel about the spiritual life or otherwise. Uh, again, we can see how deeply the fathers are rooted in the scriptures and that their insights into the human person and our struggles often arise. That was their spiritual reading. And so it should be for us as well. And the fathers should really lead us to the scriptures and lead us into it more deeply, or I don't think we're reading them correctly. All right, one little bit more here. A certain brother once gave another advice that was of God. Coincidentally, another brother was passing by to whom the brother giving the advice said, look, I'm advising my brother here and he does not wish to listen to me. The passerby replied, he ought to listen to you. Forgive me, but it is a joy even to hear something bad from you and further to act upon it. The brother giving the counsel answered, it is not so. If you do not prove that it is of God, do not listen to me. Not only avoid listening to me, but even to a prophet if he advises you contrary to the will of God. For the apostle Paul says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. For who were 
uh, who were they that plotted against Susanna and Babylon? Were they not elders? And not simply elders, but also judges and leaders of the people. What an end befell them because they did not attend to themselves and their high office did not help them. So it's interesting, you know, that the one brother who's passing by is willing to embrace the counsel of this one who's counseling uh, another uh, simply because uh, he enjoys hearing him and uh, that that is enough, that it, it sort of speaks to him on an emotional level. So even if he were to say something bad, that he would embrace it. And I think this is another danger, I think, in, in preaching or uh, especially, you know, you know, whether it's, I think, with parents counseling their children or priests taking care of their spiritual children, that, uh, you know, the, the desire to entertain or to speak to the emotions, uh, to, to be eloquent in one way or another, I, I think can be something that's really provocative. And we've seen it be the downfall of many you know, in recent times and in the past too, you know, a kind of popularity emerges uh, that speaks to people and even the hunger of people on a spiritual level, but it still can be uh, arising out of a heart that is not uh, immersed in the love of God. And so one has to be discerning uh, in regards to whoever they might be talking to, whether it's a prophet, an apostle, an angel, Anyone who's speaking to them, if it is contrary uh, to the gospel, then it is to be something that is to be rejected. And for me, this is refreshing. You know, it's the Father's telling us, you know, that we aren't, our obedience is not blind any more than love is blind. Uh, I have always hated that old adage. Uh, in fact, I preached about it this weekend because I, I think it's just blatantly false. Uh, I think. It's often, you know, because when people are infatuated with each other, you know, they fall in love, that they often don't see the other aspects of the character, the personality of the individual they are engaging. And I'm not trying to be critical there, but that's often what it is. And infatuation is just kind of false light, false warmth that draws one person, but hopefully it gives way to a greater truth, to true love, where one sees everything about the other individual and embraces them and enters into that relationship with them. Uh, and, but within religion, there can be this same kind of thing. There can be this kind of, uh, one can idolize individuals, place them on a pedestal, elevate them uh, without discerning what, whether or not this is consistent with what has been revealed to us in Christ. And we, we can never let go of the responsibility to form our consciences in such a way that it's rooted in what has been revealed to us and what, that it's rooted in the scriptures and not receive things simply because they are spoken to us with a kind of clarity or again, that they bring a kind of joy to us on a, an intellectual or even on a spiritual level. And, uh, and, you know, I think Paul, we see Paul struggle with that because there were certain people that uh, the early Christians were gravitating towards. And some of them were very eloquent preachers and teachers. And yet in some subtle ways, uh, the early communities of Paul were being drawn down a path that was contrary to the gospel that he had proclaimed to them. And in particular, those who, who were pressing for the, the uh, converts to Christianity, in particular the non-Jewish converts, to first become Jews, to be circumcised, to embrace all the dietary laws before they become Christians. And in Paul's mind, this was complete lunacy, that it was to, you know, turn away and from what was liberating uh, and what the law could never give, it was turning back to it and enslaving oneself to it uh, before one would turn to Christ. And, you know, Paul, if there was one time they got very angry, it was this, you know, because it was leading people astray in such a way it was leading them off the true path. 
that had been revealed to us in Christ. And, uh, and so it's good as we go through the Evergatinas to hear it said that we aren't simply to embrace everything that we even hear from the fathers, as much as we might esteem them, we, we have to read them in a discerning way. And not simply because they appeal to some part of our, our minds, our hearts, our emotions. It's a hard thing for me because I've always loved the fathers and esteemed them, you know, ever since I first read them. And I, I've, I've been taught in groups from those who attend the groups that I cannot, I have to be wary of overgeneralizing things, you know, that I would at times have that tendency, you know, in reading the fathers then to speak too, you know, too broadly about what they are saying or to apply too broadly what they are saying to the point that it, it clouds out other aspects and other facets of the, of the truth that is being spoken of. And so there can be a, a danger there. And I've had to learn that over time that I can be swept along simply because of the reverence that I have for them and, you know, and need to be you know, discriminating in how I do that. It's a good thing, I think, to hold on to, whether it's you're in the pew listening to a homily in the confessional or reading something. You know, everybody and their brother publishes a book. And uh, there are some things that can be good about that, but there's a lot that's not good about that. That means we have to be even more discerning in terms of what we pick up to read. That brings us to 8.30. Anyone have any final comments or concerns, questions? Yes, it is good to wrestle with. A lot there to wrestle with tonight. And there will be more in the coming hypothesis as well. You know, all these things, I think, touch directly upon so much, so many aspects of our life and relationships with others, how we view things, how we view ourselves, and how we view our relationship with God. And so it does involve a lot of soul searching. Sometimes it makes it hard to read the fathers for that reason. Like, oh my gosh, I can't go back <laughs> to what I was doing or thinking. One page at a time, one page at a time. That's right. One paragraph even. One paragraph, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yes, that's right. right. Yeah. So we're going too fast, I think. Slower down. So, okay, we'll stop there for the night. Oh, one more here from Emma, uh, since uh, she's new to comment here, I think. When we are told to turn away from people who are stumbling blocks for us in the spiritual life, how do we evangelize others if we turn away from everyone who isn't helping us grow spiritually? Well, it's, you know, I, I think we've often talked about the fact that we can't give what we don't have. And so our primary focus has to be Christ and our life in him. And this is the pearl of great price for us. And so we have to prize it above all things. And if we don't, then what is it that we are going to give to others? How is it that we are to evangelize unless we ourselves have undergone great conversion? And unless we live in this constant spirit of, of repentance, and, uh, and I think this is the missing step in the new evangelization, you know, that what, what is it that we are bearing witness to? What is new here? And I think the new step has to be sort of the action of the spirit within the life of the church. There has to be this repentance, a radical turning to God, a radical conversion to the gospel. You know, our age more than those before us needs saints. And so that should be the, the first step for us, this radical turning to Christ and living for him and being transformed by that grace before we take it upon ourselves to preach to others, to bear witness to them. And uh, I think, you know, certainly this involves, again, not stepping into that life or not being mired in the life of the world. There has to be a freedom out of which we speak to others, that freedom of obedience to Christ, obedience to the gospel, to the truth, 
And if we're not speaking out of that freedom, then anything that we say or do is not going to bear lasting fruit. So conversion always has to begin with ourselves and has to go through our own hearts. Okay. Very good. So why don't we close there with our Father and we'll, we'll pick up next week. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.